One of the things that we learn in studying how humans interact with humans and how humans interact with machines is that you achieve better outcomes if there's a shared situation awareness. So if everyone knows what's going on or has a relatively common understanding of other capabilities, outcomes, rules, that's going to improve safety outcomes. Welcome to The Bike Lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Ed Straub, Vice President of Land Systems at SAE ITC. As VP of Land Systems at SAE ITC, Ed works with a number of global OEMs, suppliers, technology companies, researchers, regulatory bodies, boards, advisory councils, and global standards organizations dealing with automated driving technologies, safety, and human interaction to influence positive societal change. Ed has a leadership role in creating SAE's Autonomous Vehicle Standards Group and our own beloved SAE ITC Vulnerable Road User Safety Consortium. Outside of work, Ed rides mountain bikes, so I know he gets the bike lane. Ed, welcome to the bike lane. Thanks, Jake. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's start off first with your background and how you first got into this really unique role of working with standards groups and companies all over the world. When I get asked this question, I liken it to sort of a, a Forrest Gump story. So I was in the Marines. I was a combat engineer officer. And when I left, got into technology and strategy consulting, worked my way into the U.S. Army, helping there, went back to school, learned about um, human and social interactions, and started working with the ground vehicle robotics team. Had a couple really interesting level four automated vehicle programs there, and then moved into safety at the American Center for Mobility and now here at SAE. So you're coming at this from like really an automation and robotics and like how humans interact like perspective, which is a bit refreshing. I mean, most of us are, are classic car people. Um, and, and in the show, we've got a lot of listeners out there like, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bike guy or, or a bike gal, and, and that's what I do. So it's really interesting to hear that you've come at this from robotics before AVs were even on the roads or, or even being publicized. Like with that, why do standards matter? Why do companies need this? What, what's the, the general background on and what is an SDO? Right. So SDOs, Standards Development Organizations, we develop standards that the industries follow and standards facilitate everything from um, testing to regulatory compliance to improving supply chain efficiencies and making it easier and more efficient to get parts that meet a standard specification. With automated vehicles, where I'm working now and have been for God, probably the last 10 or 12 years, it takes all of the traditional silos through technology development and basically blurs all of the lines because you've got electronics, you've got computer science, software, hardware controls, and then you're adding the HMI, the human-machine interaction, which traditionally for vehicles had been inside the vehicle, right? How does a driver and how do passengers interact with the vehicle? That's still important for automated vehicles, but now we're looking outside. So how do other agents, how do other road users interact with automated vehicles and how do we test performance 
for, for the what the vehicle does and, and it, the behaviors that it demonstrates. Around. Within the, uh, and thank you for that, within the, the testing, do you, do you feel like there's like a ballpark? Is it like equal emphasis on what needs to happen and then testing to make sure that everybody is performing to the same level so that when one company says that they have met the minimum requirements to have a autonomous vehicle on the road or the minimum requirements to have like an ADAS technology launched on the road. Is, do you feel like it's more on the, the testing and performance requirements side? Is it like, or more on the, what should we do side? Is it a function of the feature function of the group? I mean, what, what's the balance that you've seen in the last six months on performance versus actual definitions of what needs to happen. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say meet the minimum performance requirements for automated vehicles because there really aren't any out there now other than as long as it meets the minimum federal motor vehicle safety standards requirements. Where we're in new water here is that traditionally the the OEMs will build a vehicle self-certify it, test it to those FNVSS, and that's up to the states to license the drivers. So how that vehicle is operated, compliance with the rules. And that's different now when that gets handed over to the machine and to the software. So what what we're doing and from the, the standards perspective from the consortia that are out there like the ABSC, we're coming together and these are the ABSC Automated Vehicle Safety Consortium is a group of automotive OEMs, ADS developers, fleet operators who are actively engaged in developing this software, putting it onto vehicles and then operating fleets. So we're coming together and saying, look, here are the best practices. Here's what we're doing today for safety. Here's how we're testing. Here are the things we're measuring performance against. Interesting. And there is SAE and SAEITC. So just for the listeners out there, and many of them may not be familiar with standards groups like like I am, and obviously you, know, you work in one intimately, Ed, but let's just talk about like like real briefly like what the history is of SAE and then what's the difference between SAE and the the ITC it's a lot of acronyms and that's something i i always laugh cuz i feel like you can't get funded in detroit unless you have an acronym that's like a prerequisite to get your funding on a project or perhaps in dc as well but let, yeah. let's talk a little bit just like like back us up to the history of like SAE 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 ITC and then we'll dive in a little bit further on like this this autonomous vehicle group and what's going on there. Sure. Thanks. Yeah. Sometimes I jump ahead and you, you haven't lived in acronym soup until you've been with the department of the army or the department of defense. That's we have acronyms made of other acronyms. Oh boy. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I'll start with SAE international. So SAE international formerly known as the society of automotive engineers is a standards development organization recognized by ANSI, um, develops, it's been in existence for well over a hundred years from the beginning of the automotive industry. Back when automotive, Society of Automotive Engineers, actually didn't just mean cars. Automotive meant transportation that had a motor. Uh, so that's where you get 
uh, Orville Wright was one of the founding members of uh, SAE so long ago. But that group today is established as a nonprofit. It's a 501c3, and it's composed of members and individuals participate in committees. So the committees come together and these people are subject matter experts or consumers of the technology. And they decide, they draft, they, they volunteer their time and draft and agree upon consensus industry standards. Those standards are then used by supply chains, industry members around the world, referenced oftentimes in um, regulations. That's one of, one of the, the ways that sort of the slow moving regulatory process can keep up with technology is by referencing standards and including those in, in their regulations. So SA International does that um, and they produce the, the standards, we call them on the automotive side, J documents. SAE ITC is an affiliate of SA International, but a separate organization. ITC stands for Industry Technology Consortia and it's a 501c6, so a trade association. We have programs under ITC and I liken this to where I just talked about SAE International is committees composed of individuals. SAEITC is consortia composed of companies. So companies participate and are represented. One company, one vote, so to speak. You know, I'm learning this myself, and and I was part of a group that started the Vulnerable Road User Safety Consortium. So I'm I'm always learning and intrigued about how I bring this together. And it makes a lot of sense because you need to have that group that can treat on the company's behalf, but then also have a group that's managing standards, uh, which has actual individuals. So within, uh, within the consortia group, who typically, like who are the individuals that typically participate to represent the companies? And then the follow-up to that is within a, uh, like a, an SAE proper standards working group, what type of individuals, like the roles, uh, would participate there? Very similar roles, subject matter experts, all of them. In the ITC, uh, the role we play in the life cycle of standards development oftentimes will happen earlier in the life cycle. So where there may not yet be consensus standards or where we may need more emphasis in shaping the conversation where there are still so many unknowns, like with automated vehicles, we can have a smaller group come together in a non-public forum, by the way, so they can share a lot of um, very detailed information around the table, and then we can publish that later and share it with international. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point about uh, standards need to be open and available but doesn't necessarily mean they need to be developed in a on-stage environment. When you're just coming back to like my experiences, when we started talking first about bikes and car safety, it was us, uh, Ford Motor Company and Trek Bikes. And this was like very early days. And we all got together in a room and everybody was under NDA. And we started just talking about some concepts for what's possible. And without having a closed door meeting, I don't think we'd ever get to an open forum with like open doors and publishing things on websites. 
and I, I don't think that would be really natural for someone that is outside of an innovation team where you need to have different companies, especially competitors, when you have different industries that need to work together. And like you were saying, like when it started, it was anything with a motor. And now we're talking about multimodal mobility companies. I mean, with our, with our group, with the Vulnerable Road User Safety Consortium, we've got Lyft in there. We've got Trek. We've got Specialized. We've got Shimano. We've got SRAM. There's, there's Nissan. There's Lyft. Um, they're on the auto side of Lyft as well. And in Ford, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it takes a lot. So I, I think that it's really important to note that you sometimes have to get behind closed doors and, and uh, uh, really just vet everything out before you, you want to go open and, and share with everybody. And that, that's great that there's a, a platform for enabling that. And, and we are taking, like within the SAEITC community, even though the technology, you talked about being a little earlier in technology, the process has been around for a while. So it's not like we're reinventing the wheel for process. It's just different players, different topics, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. That's the role, the value that ITC plays in this is it gives organizations that safe space to talk. And in areas or technology areas that are being developed where we're, the technology solution to a problem isn't settled yet, we need to have um, that protection uh, to work on pre-competitive problems. Cool. Now, for some of our listeners that are maybe coming at this that are business developers, uh, no offense, not throwing everyone uh, to, to the wolves here, but uh, why does this matter for consumer tech? And there's a lot of automotive companies that are on the road today with uh, semi-autonomous vehicles, a lot of ADAS systems, many of those technologies and the standards that those technologies are based on are managed by SAE's J, uh, the letter J standards, like, like Ed just mentioned. Why should anyone in the consumer industry or, or the bicycle industry care that there's folks from a standards group working on how to how to keep these things up to date? What, what's the value for for the cyclist or the scooter rider out there? Yeah, so the the AVSC recently published a best practice on vulnerable road user interaction with ADSDBs, see more acronyms, automated driving system dedicated vehicles. So the idea here is that these are vehicles that won't switch between human control and automation. It's just the machine in charge, right? So Inter- more and more of these, think like uh, the, the rideshare shuttles, the low-speed shuttles like that, but it could be high-speed or L4 trucks. As more and more of these start to get on the roads, get used in public spaces, they're going to be interacting more and more with pedestrians. And one of the things that we learn in, in studying how humans interact with humans and how humans interact with machines is that you achieve better outcomes if there's a shared situation awareness. So if everyone knows what's going on or has a relatively common understanding of other capabilities, outcomes, rules, that's going to improve safety outcomes overall. So this best practice shares a lot of information and talks about a lot in, in solid level of detail what the challenges are for um, 
automated driving systems when they're interacting with vulnerable road users, cyclists, you know, uh, pedestrians, other form factors of vulnerable road users. Interesting. First, for the listeners, uh, check in the description. We'll link up a report that, that Ed's going to, and we'll also put a little link in there for a reference cheat sheet for uh, autonomous driving levels to uh, visually check that out. With how these are going to be interacting, these these requirements are going to interact with someone that's a vulnerable road user, even a work zone user, um, like a, like a like an instruction worker. Yeah, exactly. How, how do you see this? Like, what trends are you seeing for cross industry collaboration beyond just the competitors that are working on these pre competitive standards? How do you see this jiving, or is there tension with? other industries like consumer tech, for example, because obviously you've got technology that can be self-chosen by an automotive manufacturer to put on a vehicle. But if you've got um, a person that's riding their bicycle from 1975, their Schwinn and and going down the road, obviously you can't expect them to comply. So like, is there like, what's the thought process here about inclusion for these different types of road users and, and even just interaction. I mean, are we still pretty early on in that process or, or how does this play out or is it, or self-contained driving systems? So it's really just understanding the intent of identifying and classifying these types of uh, other road users out there. Yeah. So you hit a, hit on a, a lot <laughs> of the, the issues that, that we're currently working through, but um, so safety shouldn't be dependent on some type of digital communication, right? So it, it can improve outcomes, but automated driving should should be able to operate safely on the roads in the presence of non-connected vulnerable road users. And that's one of the things we talked about in that report. I think, and, and you've, you've mentioned a, a number of times um, and have in the past the vulnerable Road User Safety Consortium, a relatively newer consortium. Thank you for your leadership and helping get that started, Jake. But uh, that's a great place that brings multiple industries together, not just different components or aspects of the same industry, but that gives us a place to talk in a pre-competitive way about what some of the challenges are and how bicycles, software, and automotive can work toward uh, improving safety outcomes within the uh, uh, the autonomous vehicle uh, group. The when you started working on this project around vulnerable road users, what can you talk about? Maybe a, like a great story or just like how this came about? Because I I got a th- even for me coming from the automotive industry, it was always hard to get VRUs prioritized because everyone was so busy on other numbers. And, and frankly, the the number of, of uh, injuries and deaths that come from vehicle to vehicle incidents uh, are still significantly higher than the actual number of injuries and deaths that happen for VRUs. And when we first started that, uh, just sharing a story here, that, that was a challenge for us is why should a company prioritize? Because even within our own groups, we prioritize our use cases based on the number of people that we can help. And while we don't think it's the right move to say we want to make safe roads, we believe that there's a distinction to say that our mission is to make roads safer. And if it's one person and that one person is going to be safer, whether that would have been a fatality and it's a serious injury versus 
our, our vision would be that like that person would not be in a vulnerable spot in the first place. So like, we're always trying to make that improvement. So I'm curious on the back to the question is within that group, I mean, maybe you could talk about some of the companies that participated in that, that project or just, or just like the process of, Hey, we should do something for VRUs. You know, that's, that's pretty amazing. But I, I, I think I'd like to uh, kind of explore how that came about and how that got prioritized to, to be pushed out. I mean, I was, pleasantly surprised when I saw that. And I'd love to hear the story as a process because it could be useful for some of our listeners about whatever process that that your team used to prioritize this. And even something that may always have been on the back burner, it could be a useful process for somebody, even within their own company to prioritize safety. And that's like another value point, Ed, for a lot of our listeners is how does someone go into their next planning session and make sure safety isn't just a bullet point on the mantra. It's actually something that's going to end up in an internal project that a company is allocating resources to pursue. Yeah. So uh, how, how did, how did this come up as a topic? How did it get prioritized? I mean, historically, so if you go back 10, 20, 30 years, VRU safety, every people might talk about it, but it ultimately came down to the driver's responsibility, right? The person operating the vehicle. We've, we've moved on now and are, are improving the ADAS, the driver assistance uh, technologies and testing for that. But once the, um, once the automated driving system takes over the driving task, responsibility for safely interacting with VRUs is now the, the ADS's responsibility. So the AVSC um, our, our mission is to improve um, public acceptance and trust in automated vehicles. So we felt it was important to share information about how, how ADS would do this, how it would interact with VRUs safely. Um, so we've, we've been working on this for a while. I'll tell you, it, and, and it was very important to all of our members. I'll share a funny story. The and one that we kept coming back to continuously, and hopefully uh, your your listeners will go and click the document. And you'll see right in the document where how we addressed this. What we kept discussing about is well, what's a VRU? What what goes on the list? And in the background research for this, my God, there must have been two dozen different lists of VRUs, and ultimately. What what we came down to is it, it's not about a list. It's about the criteria that puts a road user on the list. It, it may sound trivial almost, but it helps move the conversation forward because now you can start looking at the criteria and different criteria that might get tested instead of saying, here is a thing here are the factors or the variables that we'll look at when we start testing. So, yeah, what is a VRU? Wow, we, we kept talking about that over and over again and ultimately, I think, came up to a pretty elegant solution. We had a similar experience uh, back to that reference on our original meeting with Ford, Trek, and our, our team at Tome. And we know that motorcycles are VRUs. I think everybody would agree with that. The, the challenge that we had uh, with our example of motorcycles is that 
they go on freeways, they go 70 miles an hour. Um, and they're not allowed to be on sidewalks ever, like an actual licensed motorcycle. And I'm not a motorcycle guy. So I might be, if you're out there and you're, you're a rider that that's uh, not like the spandex rider, like a cyclist, you're probably going, Hey, what's Jake talking about? But what I'm, what I'm talking about is that the, and that's exactly where we landed as well, Ed, in a different scenario. And for us, it was the motorcyclist that helped us classify and move the conversation from what it is to where it is and what the dynamics are. Uh, and other things that we discussed is like sometimes the bicycle and the scooter are the hardest because uh, right, wrong or indifferent scooters are in the road in the bike lane in the left-hand turn lane on the sidewalk, sometimes scattered on the sidewalks, no offense to the scooter companies. And it's like, it's just a function of the, the vulnerability level. And as a cyclist, I I've said this a few times on the show that we're really unique and that we have um, multi-use uh, trail bike paths, and even in Metro Detroit, for anyone that's the Detroit listeners, you go up to Rochester or on the northern end of the suburbs, there are dedicated, I don't know, they're like eight foot wide asphalt bike uh, mixed use paths. And even though you're legally allowed to be on the road, on the highway, you, you should not, I mean, in my opinion, you should be riding on the, the multi-use uh, trail because it's it's there for that specific purpose. Uh, obviously you can do what you want, but it's, it's like, it's there. Whereas where I live in, in Ferndale and in like Metro Detroit, we, we have signs up that say, do not ride your bike on the sidewalk. It's against code. You have to walk your bike. You need to be on the road in the bike lane and the sharrows are turning left. So that use case scenario is exactly what, what we saw. And for us, it was like, once we could agree that we didn't have to agree on what is a VRU or what's not a VRU, it's down to like what use case are we trying to solve? And if it's, uh, we have use cases like back, like uh, car in reverse and being able to know there's cross traffic alerts. That's a big one, whether you're a, a parent um, a wa- uh, pushing a stroller or, or you're a cyclist or a scooter rider, or um, I mean, really any, any, even a FedEx UPS driver, just knowing that there's um, VRUs around you and you need to be very sensitive in reverse when you have, may have limited visibility. So uh, we, we saw the same thing. It was like, like once we could all get on the same page about the use cases and stop talking about the power of the motor, that, that, that was what really, um, <laughs> we have one more thing on this that we, we had a, a heated, I'll say we had a heated discussion um, at, within Tome about, is it a function of matching at SE? They had this micro mobility working group. I'm, I'm assuming it still exists, but at the time it was like, if you're under this amount of power, then you are a micromobility device and under a certain speed. And if you're not, you're not. And the bike industry has classifications for e-bikes. And for us, it's like we had like we're, many of us are cyclists. I'm like, I can ride a bike 20 miles an hour. I Going downhill, I can ride a bike 35 miles an hour. So I don't think it's a function of the motor. It, it's a function of the speeds and where you're at and what you're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, all of these are her challenges that that come up and you mentioned a a number of different micromobility devices there too scooters always comes up as challenging because if you imagine that trying to look at that from uh, machine vision or radar or a lidar system any type of perception system that's being used what could what could it potentially (laughs) confuse that as especially if it's someone holding uh, a scooter, but they're not moving. They're standing, say, at mm-hmm. an intersection. Mm-hmm. Is it is it a scooter? Is it a pedestrian? It looks like a pedestrian whose legs aren't moving, but it's going ten miles an hour. Very, it, it can be a challenge. Yeah, and 
unfortunately, uh, I always refer back to the FAA where they say many of the rules are written in blood. And, um, and the idea is to make the world safer and, and learn and continuously improve. And I, I feel like we're going to be still dealing with this from our side. And, you know, even with the, the woman that was hit by the Uber car years ago, uh, that woman was walking a bicycle across the street, not on a signalized intersection, not in a crosswalk. And it, it, you have these types of edge cases, but I always like to tell people, and especially for our listeners, that I, I still think what's important is to um, keep the eye on the priority is that uh, while that's not going to be a perfect solution, I would say that it's still a worthwhile endeavor. We can't hold up progress and to make a world a safer place to, to ride without having every single use case identified. And I mean, just even with the numbers and for a lot of people, it's like looking at the numbers of people that are hurt or injured from people that are texting or impaired and in those types of situations, the uh, safety systems, while they may not prevent those types of issues, but with distracted driving or some other things where even if you're just driving into the sunlight, heading west at sun, like towards sunset, there are situations where drivers that are sober and are paying attention they look, but they, they, they didn't see you. And, and these are the type of mm -hmm. cases that really help. And, um, not to get into a psychological, uh, philosophical debate on, on what, um, I know that's your doctorate by the way, but, um, like to get into that debate today <laughs> on this show, but it, it's important that, that everybody can agree on what in the automotive industry we call day one use cases, things that everybody can agree to. And even if we can back burner and put, put on hold things that might be some disagreement, you know, I think everyone would agree that a person riding a bicycle, scooter, or walking on the sidewalk is a VRU. And like, let's let's look at those types of, of uh, interactions when that person uh, is crossing a, a road. Yeah. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and those those are the sorry those are those are the type of competencies and behaviors that we've laid out in, in some of our documents. Exactly, crossing a road, passing a VRU. Parallel. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm also really encouraged and I, I hope we'll have someone on from uh, USDOT Federal Highway uh, in the next few months, um, especially with all the action at the Intelligent Transportation System Show, the ITS show. I'm, I'm really excited about um, like what what's coming down the pipe, especially when we think about the requirements and standards that um, USDOT is looking at and the participation between uh, public and private partnerships. So that's something that we're really, really into. So um, staying on um, uh, kind of this topic around companies and standards, we haven't talked yet about the US versus international. And uh, many of the companies that you have uh, across the board, whether it's SAE or the SAE ITC, the consortia groups, these are many of them are based in the US, but maybe almost all of them are, are working in different regulatory environments. And earlier you talked about state versus federal for automated safety systems. Well, there's state, federal, and then international. So uh, are we supposed to expect that for software teams or for many of the listeners, product developers at consumer tech companies are supposed to have 50 different for the states in the US? different versions of rules that happen when they went of when, I mean, what about those cities that are like in two States too? So you have like cities that literally have like two States depending on the parting line. Like how, are we supposed to be developing everything based on every state, every country? Uh, wh wh where's this going? And, and how are the international companies um, in your opinion, like looking at this, this international challenge? There can be a lot, it can be confusing out there. There are a lot of different, 
jurisdictional boundaries, all of which, any of which may have different rules, or regulations, or codes. And of course, the biggest uh, variation is the self-certification regime we have here in the U.S. versus the type certification that goes on um, elsewhere around the world, Europe, Japan, places like that. From our perspective, the, the way the ABSC is approaching it anyway, Automated Vehicle Safety Consortium, is looking at it as a system level measure of safety. So we're looking at it from what you might call a black box. How well does the system perform? What the metrics that we've identified can all be measured externally from the vehicle. How does it perform? What's the overall safety outcome? There are leading indicators that we can measure as well that are correlated to safety uh, or safe performance, I should say, um, that can all be measured externally. Now, and part of the advantage of focusing on a, um, an external evaluation, a system level of safety performance, I guess it goes back to still the stage in the life cycle where we are with this, right? So there are, it's a technology agnostic approach. So one company may use 20 different LIDAR, another may use millimeter wave radar, um, how they're fusing all of their sensor systems. If you start measuring individual, and now, now the companies certainly are doing this <laughs> and then certifying that they're able to um, uh, perform a, a certain way. But if you start getting down to a detailed level or requiring certain types of uh, sensors or ways to process and fuse information, I think that's going to end up delaying the benefit to society that we'll get because you got to be able to scale this stuff and deploy it. Interesting point for sure. I think that the key here is defining like what I'm taking away from the, your answer is that it's defining what needs to be done and how you'd measure it, not like the technical methodology of how it's delivered. Is is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I apologize for taking so long to say that you said it much more succinctly. No, you, you got it right. I mean, it's the right detail. It's just for, uh, for, for myself, it's, it's like, I'm not an, an a standards as someone that actually gets involved in standards, I know I'm not the standards person. I, I've met so many great people. I actually want to call it Mike Stoltz from Panasonic, amazing individual and uh, my hero when it comes to standards and worked on the basic safety message and Sue Bai from Honda. I want to call, give her a shout as well and the work that she's done and for for decades on on this type of thing. And and as not as some as people that do this all day, every day, it's it's like try to extract this out for why this all matters, because I don't think our listeners fully, uh, many of them fully grasp that you're not going to get this progress without this types of groups. And and just as another example, let's, let's completely pun intended shift gears. So there's standards groups that SAE has that are non-safety and there, there are standards groups that Brian Mark Walter at CTA manages the Consumer Technology Association that like, for example, the HDMI standard that uh, without that, you couldn't plug, you, first of all, you wouldn't have HDTV. Second of all, you wouldn't be able to plug in a Samsung um, Blu-ray player into a LG television, into a Sonos soundbar. It just wouldn't work. You'd be 
and like downloading driver nightmare from it remind you of like plugging in printers back in the 1990s and downloading drivers so <laughs> you know, they, these types of things are the underlying core technology that the the smartest people in the room are figuring out like how they can all work together so everybody has a better experience and and convincing business people that this is pre-competitive. It's like like Bluetooth in a car, maybe it's like shifting, pun intended, back into the vehicle world is just having standard Bluetooth standards that the this, that group that manages that is called the SIG, which stands for uh, Special Interest Group, I believe, originally from Nokia, uh, if I remember that correctly. It, it, like these are these groups that you, you take for granted plugging your phone into your car mm-hmm. or wirelessly connecting and phone calls work. There is a team of probably dozens of smart engineers that had to convince their business people that that need to exist. So um, without this, without Ed, you and and the work that your organization is doing, we're not going to get safer roads. And I believe that like it's the foundation of organization and bringing people together. And even though SAE employees don't write the standards, you mentioned these are the the members without the work that you're doing, we will not have safer roads. So uh, I, I think that's a key, key message and takeaway for, for everyone listening to the show today. Yeah. Thank, thanks for that. A lot of people don't understand what pre-competitive even means, but it is really for focusing on outcomes and sort of decomposing. How do we get there? And then we let industry innovate the technologies to meet a lot of that. Absolutely. So as we're wrapping up, I always like to ask all of our listeners, what, like, I know you dig into a lot of information and always staying current. It's actually literally part of your job. I mean, that's like part of your job description. I think it's part of all of our jobs as listeners to be in the know, but I always like to ask what, what are you listening to podcast newsletters, trade events you go to, uh, that get you excited and, um, and we'll put links in description on this, but so, uh, if people are trying to get some new, uh, new input sources that are efficient, effective, uh, or even deep for that matter, what, what, what's on your love list when something drops that you got to get into? Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll start off with the shameless plug. I mean, SAE does uh, smart briefs and sends that to me every day. And that, that's, that's usually where I'll start. I mean, there's so much information um, that and data and so much news going on. It seems like I can spend half a day just going through the news feeds that I get in my email. When I'm relaxing in the car and listening to my, my podcasts, the ones that I turn on are either Hidden Brain or uh, Revisionist History from Malcolm Gladwell that he does. But that, I guess, goes more my background and sort of eclectic journey here. Love it. Love it. And uh, last question is, uh, how can our listeners get in touch with uh, SAE, SEITC? Uh, what's the, what's the, what's the move if, if people are feeling like, yeah, I would love to have someone from my team get involved in this organization and, and learn more. Where, where should we point them to? Well, point them to our website first off, because we, all of our contact information is on the website. So you can go to sae-itc.org and get a hold of me or any of my team that way. Excellent. Excellent. And that was Ed Straub, Vice President of Land Systems at SAE ITC. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening. See you next time in the bike lane.